Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Lovely to have you here. Um, if you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. And if you've got a Bible, could you please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be getting into that uh, momentarily. Now, last week, um, I wasn't here. I was away with my family. We were on a week's annual leave. We went to North, North Norfolk um, for a week away, and we had a fantastic time. Thank you so much for those who, who prayed for us, wished us well, asked us how our time had been. We had a glorious week there. We didn't see any rain for a week, and most of the days, the sky was just blue. It was beautiful. It was a time away. We chilled out. We relaxed. We went to some lovely places, spent a couple of days on the beach, went into Norwich for a day trip, hung out, played games, ate food. It was brilliant. So we've had a lovely uh, week away, but I am thrilled to be back with you um, this morning. Now, what we're doing today is uh, part three of our um, Easter sermon series, He is Alive, looking at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the implication for us um, as believers. It began Easter Sunday where Melanie spoke um, from Acts uh, chapter 9, I think it was, with the conversion of Paul, a conversion of Saul, who's also known as Paul, we know him as, and how he met the risen Lord Jesus and the transforming effect that had on his life. Then last week, Jeremy began a kind of um, the main chunk of our series where we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the reason we're looking at that one chapter is that that man, Paul, Saul, who met the risen Jesus, wrote letters that make up much of our New Testament. And in his letter to the church at Corinth, he spends a whole chapter talking about the resurrection of Jesus and its implication. It's the longest piece in our Bible that talks about it. And so we thought um, after Easter, wouldn't it be great to just look at that, dig in, uh, focus in on um, that um, part of the Bible and look at what the resurrection was. And last week, Jeremy talked about the resurrection being of first importance. That phrase is used by Paul when he talks uh, about the good news of Jesus. It's the fact that he died but also that he rose again and that he appeared. And he makes a list, doesn't he? He appeared to Cephas or Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. And then there were 500 others, unnamed people, who met the risen Lord Jesus. Um, and then to James, his younger brother, and then also to Paul himself. And he says this was of first importance. This was vital for um, the message that he is preaching, that he spent his life proclaiming, and that we now also proclaim uh, many, many years later. We also recommend a book. Uh, with a Mighty Triumph by Rhett Dodson. I've read this in preparation. I read it about a year ago, just as God started speaking to me about this and thought this would be a great thing to recommend. Jeremy gave away a few copies last week. If you weren't there last week and you want a copy of this, just come and grab me. We will buy you one, our gift to you. Um, please read that. It's an excellent book all about 1 Corinthians 15. So you can just focus in, spend some time meditating on it, reading it. If you want a copy, come and grab me at the end and I will get one sent to you. So, We've seen from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've done the first uh, 11 verses, um, and we've seen that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his bodily resurrection is of first importance in our proclamation of the gospel. It's not about just about Jesus dying, it's the fact that his, die, his death is then vindicated by his resurrection. Now we come to the problem. Now in Corinth, in the church there, the church there wasn't that huge, maybe our kind of size, um, and uh, Paul had started that church and then gone away, carried on his missionary journey. But the church in Corinth, God bless them, had a few problems. And if you read through um, the, the book of uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's basically Paul addressing problem after problem. And there were many. And if you ever want to read that letter, you'll be really pleased that we're not as bad as them, we hope. Do you know what I mean? It's like, 
God's church is wonderful and glorious and beautiful, but boy, can it suck sometimes. And Corinth is um, one of those examples of that. But we get to a particular one in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is going to deal with a problem, and that is that there were believers in the church, men and women in the church, who were denying the resurrection from the dead. They were denying that, that men and women later in the future would also rise from the dead like Jesus. And what had happened is there was a bit of a, um, a, a conflict a, uh, between members of the church. And Paul is addressing this. He's like, this is an issue. I need to address it and I need to lay it out for them. And this, the thinking was probably influenced by um, Greek thought at the time, which would have been the culture that they sort of swam in, where the body, the physical body was kind of frail and weak and almost holding you back, but the soul inside was almost as an immortal soul, and that would go on, and that would rewrite, but your body, you wanted to get rid of it as soon as you could. But actually, no, the message of Christianity is God redeems everything, and actually even our bodies will be redeemed, which Jesus demonstrated when he rose bodily from death. And uh, Jeremy pointed out last week, he could walk through walls, which is, wow, crazy, but he also ate fish. And so there was something about this resurrected body that was like ours, but not like ours. It was something, and at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get to, Paul talks about that specifically. So this was going on. And so Paul then pushes back with it and said, well, if, that's, if you're denying the resurrection, what is the implications of that? It's almost a what-if question. What if there was no resurrection? What would that actually mean? What, what, what's the implications of what you're saying? And these are, these, are, these are questions you often find in fiction, the kind of what ifs. Oh, crumbs. Don't tell Phil, all right? She's not here. I've kicked it off the stage. It actually, yeah. Anyway, let's just move on. I won't go that side because I know I'll kick that off too, won't I? Anyway, Phil, if you're listening, nothing happened. Nothing. It's fine. It's fine. Anyway, these what-if questions. What if there was no resurrection? What are the implications? They're actually, you find these in fiction. Has anyone seen or heard of the, um, the story, um, A Man in the High Castle? It was a book written by Philip K. Dick, probably thought 50 years ago, and then they made it into a TV show on Amazon. It's hugely popular, ran for many seasons. And what was the what-if question they asked there? What if Nazi Germany won the Second World War? And what were, the, what were the implications of that? It was Nazi Germany and Japan. If they had won what would, and they defeated the Allies, what would happen? And there's a whole big story and there's a big show about that. And you can watch that. And actually, when you start posing those questions, you come to quite some quite scary, horrible conclusions. I love comic books and reading comic books. Um, and one of the questions that if you read those is they love to put out what-if questions. And one of the famous characters, Spider-Man, what's one of the most defining uh, incidents in Spider-Man's life is the death of his Uncle Ben. Because when Uncle Ben dies, he gives him that speech, doesn't he, just for his death. With great power comes great responsibility. And he delivers it to the young Peter Parker who has all these superpowers. And Peter's like, I don't care. I'm a selfish teenager. And then what happens? Uncle Ben dies and it's tragic and horrible. But what happens? Spider-Man comes out of it and he's awesome and he's a great hero and woo, fights crime. But what if Uncle Ben hadn't died? Would Spider-Man still be Spider-Man? Or would he be a selfish teenager with orphan powers who would just be not helping and caring for people. So these what-if questions are normal, but Paul asks these um, questions, what if there was no resurrection? So let's have a little look at the passage, and then we will dive into it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting verse 12. It should appear behind me, but I will read it as well. If you haven't got your Bible, it says this. Now if Christ 
is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. It is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We'll pick up more of that next week. So, there was division in the church over the death um, of the resurrection and whether they would be um, uh, raised from the dead. And there was obviously conflict. And uh, you'll be terrified to know, but there's conflict in my family too. There's division in my family. And one of the biggest areas of division we have in our family is when we go uh, to the sweet shop. And you do the pick and mix. Anyone's done pick and mix at the sweet shop? Now, we go to Jen's sweet shop, which is in, on the Baldmere High Street. That's our, our haunt. And when we go in there and we give, uh, the boys will get a little bag. And you can fill it up with some sweets. And I, obviously, I get a bag. I can fill it up with sweets. And Mel gets a bag. We can fill it up with sweets. And what we found is that our family is split down the middle completely. In this, there's obviously the right side, which incidentally I happen to be on, and there's the other side. And when we get the right side, me and my eldest son Levi, we go to the pick and mix and we dive in and we go for the sour sweets and the jelly sweets and the sourest and the jelliest sweets we can find, and we pack our bag full of them. But the the other side of my family, my wife Melanie and I, my youngest son Asher, they just want chocolate. They want chocolate and more chocolate, whether it's Snowies or Jazzies or those little mice or those fish and chips or whatever. They just want chocolate and chocolate and chocolate. So when we get to checkout and we all look at our bag, what have you got, what have you got, what have you got? There is complete division in my family. There is the jelly right side and there is the chocolate wrong side for us. And this church in Corinth was like that, but it was over the resurrection of the dead. And the big idea that Paul wants to deal with here is if there is no, if Jesus did not rise bodily from dead, the death, dead, sorry, there is, no res- there is no Christian faith. Let me say that again. If Jesus did not rise bodily from de- the dead, there is no Christian faith. And so this conflict, this pick and mix attitude had pervaded the church in Corinth and they were picking and choosing the truth of the gospel. And Paul pr- phrases this question for them, what if there was no resurrection? What if there was no resurrection? So let's go through the passage, verses 12 and 15, 12 and 13, sorry. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised. Paul follows on from what we looked at last week, what Jeremy talked about in verses 1 to 11, about the importance, the first importance of Christ being raised from the dead. And then he singles in, some of you in the church are denying the resurrection from the dead. Some of you saying it's not happened. And he's saying, fine. Okay, we'll go with you. Use that word but there. We'll go with you. We'll go with your position and we'll pose the what if. What if there was no resurrection? What if it didn't happen? What are the implications of that? And he says the obvious massive implications is that you're not raised from the dead. Neither is Jesus. Neither is Jesus. Jesus is the one 
who is the first fruit. He's the one who started this. And to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes it all possible. And he's saying to them, your position is basically undermining the key tenet of your faith. You to deny the resurrection of the dead is to say that Christ has not been raised. And the resurrection of believers at the end and the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago are inextricably linked. Paul says you cannot have one without the other. You cannot choose this thing and then reject that thing. You have to have them both or you have to have nothing at all. Nothing at all. And he's saying that is the fundamental, that is the problem, Corinth, with some of your beliefs, some of you in the church who proclaim this message. If you deny that Christians are not raised from the dead at the end bodily like Jesus, then you are denying the fact that Christ himself was not being raised. And he goes on then in the next few verses, you may have picked it up when I read it, he goes on to nail it, what does this actually mean? And he uses five words to describe their position and none of them are good. And he says, this is the implication. If you're going for the what if Christ did not rise from the dead, what if there was no resurrection? Let me, let me lay it out to you. Let me explain it to you. And there are five words that we're going to go through. And the first one is empty. Verse 14, it says this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That word in vain means empty. It means devoid of substance. It's devoid of benefit, um, void of advantage, weightless airless, breathy, it's nothing there. It is completely empty. And he says there are two things that are totally empty if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. The first one is our preaching. And when Paul uses our, he's probably talking about him and all the other people he's listed in verses 1 to 11, which would have been Paul, oh, sorry, Peter, Cephas, the 12, the apostles, those 500 who saw him, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul himself, and also the other implication is you as a church, your preaching, your Corinthian preaching is empty and worthless if Christ did not rise from the dead. It has no value. It has nothing to say. It is empty. It is like um, being brought a gift. I had a birthday just before Easter. Don't worry if you missed it. There's still time. Catch up. I don't mind. Don't panic. But my birthday was just before Easter, and imagine on your birthday you got given a gift. I got a bunch of gifts, lovely gifts. I got some t-shirts, it's one of my new ones. Um, I'll be modeling over the next few weeks, so just watch out for that. I got them, and I got some books, love books, a bunch of sweet. I got some, I was really blessed by people. But imagine you get your birthday presents, and they're always wrapped, aren't they? They're wrapped up, and you open it, and inside there's nothing. It's empty. That would be like, that's what Paul's saying, that's what your, the preaching's like. It's empty, there's nothing there, there's nothing to show for it. And not only is the preaching empty, what else do he say is empty? Your faith, the faith that, you, that is born out of the preaching because the preached word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that proclamation of Jesus, whether it was from a big public setting or a one-to-one -one setting, whatever that truth was and whatever resulted from that in your life, oh, confession of faith, yes, I want to trust Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want to repent of my sin. It's all empty, it's meaningless, it doesn't have anything if you deny the resurrection. If you deny that Jesus rose from the dead, by implication you're doing that because you're denying that believers rise, so it's all linked up. If you do that, it's all empty. Christianity is simply a fairy tale, a nice story to tell other people. There's nothing solid to it, there's nothing you can stand on. The resurrection is empty. Sorry, yeah, resurrection means 
our faith, our preaching is empty. So that's the first one. The second one, verse 15 and 16, it says, if there's no resurrection, what we're preaching is false. It says, we are found to be misrepresenting God. So Paul's saying, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. You've done it as a church in my absence. That's what you've been proclaiming. He says, you've been found misrepresenting God if you deny Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that word misrepresenting is the same word. Another way of translating that would be bearing false witness. Now, for those who've been around a while, we did a, um, a sermon series a couple of years ago on the Ten Commandments. Where does bearing false witness come in? One of the commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbors. Another way we'd say it in shorthand is your don't lie. Paul says we're lying about God. We are liars. We are selling false goods. We are worse than used car salesmen. Ooh, controversial. But you know what I mean. We're selling a faulty bill of goods. And what it means is, and if you're doing it about God, the other Bible word they would use is you are committing blasphemy. So if you're denying the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you are committing blasphemy because you are taking um, the truth of God and you are denying it and you are selling a lie. You are selling a lie. And so what they are preaching is false. They are just charlatans. They are hacks peddling something, a false gospel, a false message. Denial of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is denying the gospel. You can't just pick and choose your truth. You have to take the whole thing. And what they find themselves, Paul is saying, you're as bad, by denying that the resurrection, you're as bad as the people at the trial of Jesus who were the false witnesses who accused him, who came and they couldn't get their stories to line up and they told lies about him that ultimately convicted him by a cowardly judge and led to his death. He said, you're just like that. You're just like that. That is what you're doing. And, even, and, and you're misrepresenting God to one another and you're misrepresenting God to the city that you're a part of. Number three, it says, as well as being empty and false, it says you're futile. See, it says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Futile just means pointless, uh, fruitless, not producing any result. And so if Jesus' body is still in the tomb, just outside Jerusalem, if he's still there, his bones are still there, what you are doing is pointless and it will get you nowhere. And worse, it says you are still in your sins, which means there is no forgiveness, no redemption, no justification, no reconciliation, no adoption. You are guilty. You're an object of God's wrath. You are lawbreakers. You are rebels. You rightly face God's judgment. All the stuff that we proclaim and sing about and gets us like, ooh, that doesn't mean anything without Christ's resurrection. It doesn't happen. You're actually just back to square one. And Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, You are dead in your trespass and sin if you deny the resurrection of Christ, if you take that out of it. If you deny our future resurrection, you deny his past resurrection, and ultimately you end up with nothing. Your faith is futile. If you remove the foundation of a house or a building, what happens to the building? It collapses. Number four. So we've had empty, false, futile. The last one, verse 18, you are lost. So Paul has talked about believers who are alive. He's saying you're still in your sins if there's no resurrection. What about the ones who've fallen asleep? It's just another way of saying they've died. What about believers in the past who've died? 
Well, he says, Jesus, um, Paul says, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've perished, which means they are lost. Those who died believing in Jesus, hoping in Jesus for their resurrection, if he didn't rise from the dead, they're gone. They're done. They face the eternal judgment seat of God without an advocate, without forgiveness, without righteousness, without holiness, and they face the wrath of God. They are completely lost. And what he sums up, he says, to deny the resurrection denies your past in terms of forgiveness. It also denies your future in terms of what it means to be saved. So denying the resurrection is huge. And the last one, Paul's final verse here, verse 19, it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are most to be pitied. As a result, if we've got no past forgiveness... Verse 17, we've got no future hope. Verse 18, he says, then you, us, all people who proclaim the name of Jesus are the most pitiable people on earth because we believe in a false gospel. We believe in a false hope. We believe in a false truth. And he's saying that, think about anyone you know who's in a difficult position, facing destitution, uh, fleeing from wars or famine, grieving, hurting, Point down, he says they, they, they're in a really tough position. He says that you're in a worse one because you put your faith and hope in something that cannot stand. It cannot come through. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's weightless. It's futile. It's in vain if you deny the resurrection of Jesus. Believers who do that are to be pitied because it's all hopeless without that. And so in summary, what Paul is doing is he is trying to Pose that what-if question. If there was no resurrection, what would that mean? And hopefully you've seen this morning how truly horrific that is. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what it means. And the gospel of Jesus is not a pick-and-mix affair. It's not something that you can take that bit over there, but actually I don't like that bit over there. I'll leave that in the little counter on the sweet shop, and I won't go near that. But I'll go over those ones because I like one. They, they taste good. We can't just keep um, the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness and the Father heart of God, but then reject things like holiness and repentance and suffering and trials and being generous with our money and getting baptized and being obedient to the word and coming under that authority. We can't just take one without the other. And the resurrection for Jesus is dead is the, f- the most important, the foremost in that. That's how our faith begins. That's how our faith s- continues. That's how our faith stands. And that's ultimately how it will end. Dying, hoping, believing that one day we too will be raised from death like him. And you don't get to pick and choose one. You take all of it or you take none of it. And we as believers, and Paul is pointing that out to them. You can't stand there in the church and say, oh, we don't believe in that bit. Don't like that bit. That bit's not true. No. You have it all or you have none of it. And if you have none of it, then you are in a sorry, sorry state. The, the, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus is a complete body of teaching. It's not something we just get to pick some bit and reject other bits. And at the center, the hub, the burning core is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is the lens from which we interpret our New Testament. In fact, we interpret our whole Bible. When we come to it, we say, he is alive. So what does this now mean for us? 
He is speaking now through this to us in this place. What does this mean for us? How do we respond for that? We don't get to take one bit. We don't get to take the other. And Jesus rose bodily from death on that third day. We celebrate that. We cry out about it. We sing that. But actually one day we too will rise bodily from death in the future. And we have a hope to look forward to. And as our body um, breaks down and gets more frail, Another year passed, I looked in the mirror and thought, oh, crumbs, another year did pass, didn't it? Grayer, flabbier, slower. You're free to all disagree at any point here. You're just saying, no, no, that's not true, Stuart. That's not true. Weaker. I've now started, every time I move or I I get up, I have to start making, I've reached the make noise phase of my life. I used to be able to just pop out of things, pop out of bed, pop out of a chair, ready to go. Now it's, mm, ugh. And earlier in the morning, the noises just get louder. Even, even rolling over, the alarm goes off, you have to kind of roll over to turn it off. Even that's a great, I've reached that phase. And, and the good news is it only gets worse. There's no, but at the end, there is a resurrection. There is a hope that we can look forward to. Because Jesus did rise from the dead. And it's good to pose what if questions. What if Uncle Ben did die? But actually, we reject them because we know the truth. Jesus did rise from the dead. There will be a new heavens and there will be a new earth. So what does this mean for us right here, right now? Let's land this. What does this mean for us right here, right now as believers? It means that when we celebrate our faith, when we talk about our faith, we begin with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, he died on the cross in our place for our sins, but then he rose bodily from death. He ascended into heaven and he is now glorified at the right hand of of the Father. And we put our faith and trust in him. And that is the message we proclaim to the world. He is alive. And he is Lord of all and King of kings. And he's coming back. And so we need to get right with him. If you're not a believer here, my plea to you, my urge to you is to get your life right with Jesus. It's the most important question you will ever face. It's the most important question you will ever deal with. It's the most important question that you will ever have to grapple with. Jesus rose from the dead. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows you. He wants to know you more. He wants to have a relationship with you. What are you going to do with that? And the reality is all of us have fallen short of God's glory. We've all, uh, we've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We stand before a righteous judge under his wrath as a result for all the things we have, but Jesus says, I've died in your place, your sin, come to me, receive my forgiveness, receive my righteousness, receive my holiness, come as part of my family. And if you're not a believer here and you want to know more about it, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to come and we'd love to stand alongside you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus who is alive here and now with us by his spirit. What about if you are a believer here? What does it mean? Well, five things that it means for us right now. Instead of our faith being empty, it is full. Instead of our faith being empty, it is full. It has weight. It has substance. It is a solid foundation on which we can stand. It is the rock of our salvation. We can cling to it in times of trial and struggle. We can stand on knowing it will not move like the shifting sands of culture and the world and institutions that we see that are rocked by things. An invisible virus rocked the world. But the truth of God and his resurrection stands and will continue to stand. It did before, it did during, it will after into the future. Our faith is full. 
We can hold on to it in this life, no matter what comes to you, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you face. And some of you are facing really difficult times. Some of you might be facing great times. But you can stand on it. You can hold on to it. It's not going to move. It means that our life is full of energy and vitality because the power of God, the resurrection power of God is working and living within us. And so our faith is full. He is not dead. He is alive. The second thing, instead of our faith being false, it is true. It is true. It is a message that has been corroborated by history, by hundreds of witnesses, by historical documents that outnumber any other ancient text by a country mile that point to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We have lives of transformed men and women that go down through the centuries Again, again, people, I've met the risen Jesus. He has transformed my life. The Word of God has shaped so much of what we do, particularly in the West. Lives have been changed. This is a true thing. It's not something we we need to shy away and hide and think, oh, what people think. The Bible itself, as God's Word, has stood the most horrendous assault on its authority and its inerrancy, and every single assault has been repelled and failed because it's the Word of God. And no weapon form will will prosper against it. And that's what it is. So our faith is true. We we can hold on to it, and therefore we can boldly proclaim it. We can live it out. And there may be opposition. There will be opposition. But actually, we can hold on to something that's true, knowing that it will not let us down. It will not buckle under the pressure. And so we preach it and proclaim it with boldness and live it out in our lives. Number three, instead of our faith being futile, and fruitless, it is hopeful. It is hopeful. And when I mean, when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about 100% certainty. It's not one of those vague certainties that we kind of, we hope for, and actually will it, won't it. No, when the Bible talks about hope, there is 100% certainty. Our faith is hopeful. When we look back and we look into our past, and we see all the errors and all the problems we've gone, we can stand there and proclaim, not guilty, Because God has declared us not guilty, not by our own actions, not by anything done, but because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We can say, actually, we stand holy and righteous as we look back in the past. We can say, we've been reconciled to God. God is now our friend. We've been adopted into his family. He is now our father in heaven. We can look to our present, even this moment, and say, I can call out for help right now. In whatever I'm facing, I can call for mercy and grace. I can come before his throne, whatever's going on. I can be full of the Spirit right now. And as I look to the future, I know that God is going to transform me day by day, minute by minute, to become more and more like Jesus. Till one day, when the end comes, I will die, I will go into the ground, and then I will be raised to life bodily with him. It is a hopeful faith, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth with no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears, and I will see him face to face and be with him forever. Our, hope, our faith is hopeful. Instead of being lost, we are saved. Instead of being lost, we are saved. We are a saved people. We are the holy, righteous people of God. The wrath of God on sinners has been averted It has been taken, it has been absorbed by Christ, and we can enjoy his salvation right now and the fruits of it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Who sang the song in their head? Yep, all the kids, all the kids' workers. The fruit of the Spirit comes with us, and we can enjoy that salvation right now, knowing that one day in the future it will be 
full and hopeful for us all. The last one. Instead of being pitied, we are joyful. We are joyful. We celebrate the goodness and faithfulness of God in this life as we anticipate the next. We shout for joy and we praise him. It's great on those songs we sang in the beginning that kind of put our eyes on that. That's what we do. And even in the midst of suffering and pain and hardship, we can still do that. Not in some false kind of slap on plastic, happy, clappy way, but a deep joy that we know that God is working in us and through us. Even in the face of horrific hardships and pain and suffering. You look at in Acts chapter 7, you see about um, Stephen, first Christian martyr. He is being stoned to death. But it says his face is like an angel and he's looking up to heaven. Even in the midst of suffering, there is a joy knowing what is waiting for him. And we see a picture of Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of God. Only time you see him standing in heaven. All the rest of the time he's sitting. And he's standing, welcoming his servant back. So even in the face of suffering, we can know joy. We can know joy in this life. And I don't know about you, but... When it comes to joy in this life, there are things that can help me. And I, I, this morning there were just things going on, rambling around my head. I'm running through my sermon and things start to come in. You know, and you start to, you start to feel like, oh, come on, I've got a lot to do. You start to come down. I come in here and I stand with the people of God and the band start. And do you know what? Joy started to rise up. Okay, okay. The band, we started singing something. The truth, I'm proclaiming truth. Yes, this is good news. This is good. It doesn't matter about life. It doesn't matter about all the other things going on, all the pressures, all the stuff I've got to do tomorrow, the fact that it's raining on a bank holiday, <laughs> time in love, England. You know, joy, joy arose in me. And so as we worship and we praise, I thought, yes, thank you, Lord. I was reminded of the joy of my salvation. I was reminded of all the goodness and the greatness that he has revealed to me. I was reminded just who he is and how worthy of worship is. And we, as the people of God, are to be joyful. Not because we generate it or we're clever, because we look to him and that produces it in us because we see how wonderful and gracious he is. He is alive. He rose from the dead bodily. We too one day will rise from the dead bodily. We don't get to pick and choose the gospel. We take it all. And that is good news. He is alive. Amen? Amen. All right. Can we have the band back up? I think I'll pray and try not to kick more decorations off the stage. And then we're going to worship the Lord together. All right, do you want to stand up, guys? And I'm going to pray for you. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Maybe you want to raise your hands if you're feeling joyful. If you're not, I'll pray, and by the end of it, you will be joyful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you for the truth that you rose from the dead bodily. Not some funny spirit, but your body was transformed. The grave was empty. Only the grave clothes were left behind, Lord God. We thank you for that. We thank you that we, that is the foundation of our faith. That is the truth that holds it all together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can celebrate and proclaim that now, Lord God. And we, we also look to the future and proclaim one day we will rise. We will rise in you. We will be bodily restored, transformed into new 
imperishable bodies, Lord, and we will see you face to face, Lord, and we thank you. But in the meantime, as we stand right here, right now in this place, aware of all the things going on in life, aware of the pressures that we face, Lord, we're going to make a choice. We're going to make a choice to believe the truth. We're going to make a choice to believe that you rose, that one day we will rise, and we are going to accelerate that. We're going to proclaim that. We're going to live that out. We're going to take the full gospel message and live it out. We're going to reject pick and mix Christianity that takes one thing but rejects the other. We're going to take all of it, Lord Jesus, and we're going to proclaim you are good, you are God, we love you, we worship you, and God's people said,